take your Bibles, if you would, please, and open again to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. Henry Martin, no relationship to Paul Martin, but Henry Martin was a pioneering missionary into what would be modern-day India, Azerbaijan, Turkey, and Iran. He, at that time, was taking the gospel where it was not known. There were no known Christians in those parts of those countries to which he was going. And along the way in his preaching of the gospel, he found time to translate the New Testament, all of it, into first Urdu, then Persian, and then a Judeo-Persic language. And then in 1812, he died from the plague alone in the wilderness of India at 31 years of age. Henry Martin, however, was not a courageous man. He was not one of those, you know, anchors away, yahoo, let's go to the mission field kind of guys. Before he started his work, he was wrestling, weeping, in fact, at the thought of leaving England. He worried over his effectiveness. He was plagued by fears and misgivings, so much so that he arranged a meeting with John Newton. Yes, that John Newton, uh, who was quite old at this point, and he thought if he could sort of lay his case before Newton, Newton might say, there, there, my boy, don't go, stay home. So he confided in Newton that he didn't expect that he would see much fruit from his labors, to which Newton replied, well, none of us will see the real fruit until the last day, so carry on. And then he confided in Newton that he would face such terrible physical hardships in the work, spiritual opposition, to which Newton replied that he did not think Satan would love him for what he was about to do, so he might as well get on with it. And so Henry Martin, worried and afraid, obeyed the call of God and went to Iran. In many ways, Henry Martin was a man like Gideon. In our last episode in the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 5, uh, we saw this soaring song of Deborah and Barak. It ends in verse 31 of chapter 5, so may all your enemies, like tent peg Sisera, may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And then the, the whole episode closes with these happy words that the land had rest for 40 years. But 40 years of rest was not 40 years of spiritual thriving. Because the very next verse, Judges chapter 6 and verse 1, says the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And somewhere in the span of those 40 years of rest, after the death of Deborah, after the great victory by Barak, the people drifted back into their same idolatry that had led them into the terrible suffering they'd endured under Sisera. Brothers and sisters, never assume that your personal ease is evidence that God is personally pleased with you. He might just be preparing a Midianite army to raid. <laughs> For that's exactly what happened in the days of our next judge, Gideon. And we'll divide this section of the narrative into five chapters, if you like. And as we do, I hope we will see it is better to be 
a weak yet obedient person than to try and get through life depending on your idols. So the first thing is this, chapter one, idolatry leads to misery. Yes, we've seen this chapter before, haven't we? Judges chapter six, verse one, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So this is the repeating pattern in the book of Judges. We know from reading earlier in the book that the evil that the people are doing is bowing down to false gods, to idols. So you go back to chapter three, verse seven, for instance, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Asheroth. What are idols? Idols are made up fake deities that humans concoct in order to try and control their world. An idol is something that humans make in order to try and control their world. And Yahweh, the living God, the one true God, is going to have none of this with his people. So as patient as he is with them, his love is going to constrain him to act according to the covenant that he made with them, and he's going to bring these pain points into their lives to gain the attention of their collective hearts. And this time it's the Midianites mainly. You'll see there's Amalekites and some other people of the east. They work together. They're all in cahoots. They overpower their little neighbor Israel. So much so that the Israelites turn into cavemen. Verse 2. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Dens are not your family room. <laughs> they are hideouts in caves and crevices and in the pits. Why is Israel hiding out? He tells us, verse 3, whenever the Israelites planted crops, remember there's no grocery stores, you only eat what you grow. Whenever they planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. This is the worst kind of oppression. We flood into your land. We eat all the food that you've been growing. We steal your flocks and your herds. We let our animals, our camels, graze on whatever's left. And then we pack up and go home full bellies, no guilt, no debts. Verse 6 says, Israel was brought very low because of Midian. The people of Israel cried out for help to Yahweh. Now pause there for a second and think of the progression that you're starting to see in the accounts of the judges. Back in Judges chapter 3, the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab. Serving there is, a, is kind of a, a form of taxation. You're being highly taxed by a foreign power. And then they're delivered by Ehud. Judges chapter 4, Sisera oppressed the people of Israel cruelly. This is taxation with unfair justice. And then after this excessive abuse by Sisera, they're delivered by Deborah. And now you get to chapter 6, Israel was brought very low because of Midian. How low were they brought? Well, they've given up their homes. They're living like mice in the hills. And they, they got to stay up in the hills and watch as these Midianite raiders stroll in and take whatever they want. This is being brought very low. 
Imagine if you had to live in the hills, if you had to leave your home behind, you had to see all your food and all your wealth, all of it just taken, and there was nothing you could do about it. So if you track so far in Judges, you see that the people are first giving service to a foreign power, then they're oppressed by a foreign power, and now they are utterly humbled and destitute because of a foreign power. Friend, that is how your idols will treat you. They will keep promising you life and happiness and control and safety and pleasure and satisfaction, and they will lead you first into bondage, then oppression, and then utter destitution. And it is from this position of misery that Israel looks to God, sort of. When the people of Israel, in verse 6 there, cry out to Yahweh, the true God, from that place of weakness and suffering, God basically answers them by saying, you're not weak enough yet. Has he ever done that for you? He's done it for me. You think you're at the end of your rope, but you fail to see that your crying out is not for the sake of having God and whatever he wills alone, but it's to try and get him to act like one of your idols and to give you what you crave. And that God, our God in the heavens, he answers with a gracious and loving no. No. That's how he answered Israel, at least at first. This takes us to chapter 2. Israel, or rather misery, leads to rebuke. Verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh on account of the Midianites, Yahweh sent a prophet to the people of Israel. All right, a prophet, that's something. And he, the prophet, said to them, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am Yahweh, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And then the prophet Mike drops and walks out. There, there's your good news from God. Imagine you emigrated to Canada in the last few years, and you and your husband were blessed with triplets. And your life was chaotic, because <laughs> you've got triplets to take care of, no family around, you're barely keeping it together. So you fly your mom over from Dubai or India or Australia, wherever you're from, and your mom shows up at your house, and she walks in, she sees the complete chaos and mess, and she sits down on the sofa, puts her feet up on the table, and she says, you are a terrible mom. What on earth is going on here? Why is your house so dirty? What did I teach you? When are you going to do the laundry? And where's my dinner? And, and you would say, that's not what I was hoping for. <laughs> and there is a way in which you can read the prophet's words to Israel like that. If you believe that Israel is an innocent victim of their hardships. But you've got to remember where the chapter started. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Anybody here seven years old? There's one. There's two. Maybe three. So like your whole life, there's, there's three or four. 
Your whole life, all you've known is hiding in the hills and never enough food to feel like you've had enough to eat. God did this. God sent these raiders into the land. When you've got a little four-year-old, five-year-old little person in your home, you realize that you need some way of gaining the attention of the heart. You need her to listen to you because you need to be able to teach her that she cannot run out into a busy street, she cannot walk off with total strangers, she can't stick a metal knife into an electrical outlet, these are bad ideas. So as a parent, you devise forms of chastising her, not to pay her back for embarrassing you at the mall, but to get the attention of her heart so that you can instruct her in the path of wisdom. And any parent will tell you that this is no easy task. However, most parents will tell you that when you have reached the heart, you can tell. And when you have not, (laughs) you can tell. In essence, this is what God is doing with Israel. To put it in very out-of-date, crass terms, the Midianites are the spanking and the prophet is the lecture afterwards. But that doesn't fully represent what God is doing here because Yahweh is not only telling them truth, He's calling them back to dependence upon him, the real God who not long ago pulled them out of Egyptian slavery with some fabulous plagues and miracles and sea-splitting rescue. And, And here they are, they're treating God, Yahweh, like he's just another totem pole or your paycheck or pornography. You fill in the blank. A little territorial genie that if you rub the lamp the right way, he's gonna give you your three wishes. So God acknowledges their pain and their suffering, but basically he looks them in the eye and he says, you're not weak enough yet. You forget that I led you here. I brought you out of Egypt. I delivered you. I gave you this land. And all you have done is fear the wrong gods and not obey my voice. His point is, I am your God. And you need to come all the way to me and put all those other fake gods aside. And it would have been pure justice for God to just leave it there and walk away. Sent the prophet, I told you what you did wrong, fix it. But he is so kind, we get chapter three. Grace leads to good news. Verse 11, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite. Now, we first met the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord back in Judges chapter 2. And he just showed up out of nowhere bearing bad news, kind of like the prophet in this chapter. And then he showed up again in chapter 5, verse 23, kind of near the end of Deborah's song. Then he'll show up again in Judges 13, when, before the birth of Samson. And most would agree that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate second person of the triune Godhead whom we would identify as Jesus Christ. And that helps to make sense out of the fact that the angel of the Lord can talk about God, so in this sense about his father, but he can also talk as if he were God in the first person himself. So look just in Judges 6, verse 12, he speaks about God. The angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, appeared to him and said to him, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. He's speaking about Yahweh. 
But then he speaks as if he is God. Verse 16, and Yahweh said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Which is why when the penny drops for Gideon, he cries out in verse 22, alas, O Lord Yahweh, for now I have seen the angel of Yahweh face to face. But Yahweh said to him, peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Why does Gideon say alas when he realizes he's speaking with God? Why does he say alas? Why does he think he's going to die? Why does God tell him he's not going to die? Because God had told Moses back in Exodus 33, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So our brother Gideon is going through this monumental paradigm shift here. If you see God, you die. I saw God, I'm going to die. But this is precisely where our Trinitarian theology serves us so well. It is clear that no man can see God the Father and live. It is also clear that no man can see the Holy Spirit because he's spirit, he's invisible. It is equally true that men can behold the Son from texts like this one and your whole New Testament. Gideon is getting his mind blown by the fact that in one way you can see God and live. He is likely not able to put all the pieces together yet, but he's, he's coming to terms with the real God, and the second person of that Godhead can be seen. Do you think of God as the big man in the, in the sky? Hear that phrase? I talk to people, the big man in the sky. Eventually, the angel of the Lord, Jesus, did take on human flesh and become a man. He was never a big man in the sky, but he became a real man on the earth. And when he becomes man, this is condescension. It's not a lateral transfer. He is, it's a coming down, not a coming over. That's why one of his names when he shows up is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. Why did God come to us? Why did God take on human flesh? Well, as another more typical angel said to Mary and Joseph, he came to save his people from their sins. God became a man so that he could endure the penalty for our sins on our behalf. He takes the place of us. What, what we could never do, endure an eternity of hell, God did in the span of three hours on that cross because he is God. You might be bowing down to all kinds of fake gods, but every idol is, is simply dumb and mute when held up to Christ. He is the once for all only Savior the world is ever going to get because he's the only real God in the universe. Maybe you don't bow down to Baal or Asherah, but maybe you do bow down to comfort, fame, sexual ecstasy, more money. These are all fake gods. They will never give you what you crave. In your heart of hearts, I think what you truly crave is the love and acceptance and security that only the creator can provide you. And he's done everything necessary to open the door wide for you to receive it by receiving him. So come to Christ. Turn away from your idols, your boring little territorial deities, and embrace the eternal, living, loving God. He's more than strong enough to save you 
And he's more than profound and great enough to satisfy you. This takes us to chapter 4. Good news leads to a strong Savior. Verse 11 again, the angel of the Lord came, sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Gideon is a weak man in a weak country in a weak position. Like everybody else in Israel, he is sorely oppressed by the Midianites. So he harvests whatever wheat he can, probably earlier than it should have been harvested, so it's not full crop or whatever that term is for the city boy. And, and he takes it to his wine press, which is not where you would do your thrashing. You know, typically you do that out in the fields and you separate the grain from the straw. He's doing it in the wine press, which would be kind of like a uh, Picture something the size of your backyard hot tub, usually round, walls about three feet high. You'd fill it with grapes and march along the grapes. That's where you make your wine. Usually this is, this is a place of joy and celebration. Now he's hiding behind the wall, thrashing his, his wheat. A weak man in a weak position, hiding in the wine press, looking over his shoulder for any sign of those rotten Midianites anywhere when he spies a remarkable figure sitting under his dad's terebinth tree. The terebinth is a, is a wonderful tree, still exists, and kind of like a huge umbrella. You've seen these trees out in the middle of a dry climate, and so you would sit under them for shade. And it seems like Gideon walks up behind this man under the tree, and the angel of the Lord speaks to Gideon without looking at Gideon. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, said to him, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. Hmm. One must believe that Gideon figured this was a case of mistaken identity. <laughs> o mighty man of valor. I was just over there hiding in my wine press with my wheat. But I think Gideon realizes that this might be an angel. I don't know if you've noticed this as you read through the Old Testament, how those Old Testament saints would have this inkling that the person that was walking up or they saw sitting over here was not a normal person. And they don't walk up to them and say, hey, are you an angel? They all just kind of engage them in conversation and then it becomes increasingly clear this is not a typical human being, which is very interesting because in this age, we apparently never know when there's an angel in the gym because uh, the writer of the Hebrews said, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. But Gideon seems to have a hunch that this is some form of angelic being and it's a good time to ask his spiritual questions. Maybe he's been pondering what the prophet had recently said in his neighborhood and concerned about his own spiritual state. We don't know, but he hears this word from Almighty Man of Valor and he's like, okay, Please, my lords, please, sir, if, if Yahweh is with us, this is verse 13, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not Yahweh bring us up from Egypt, but now Yahweh has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian? And the angel does not answer the why question. The prophet's already done that. The angel has a different mission. So he, he pivots under that sprawling tree to look weak Gideon in the eye. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And I wonder if that moment Gideon looked behind him, like, is there somebody else here? <laughs> go in this might of yours, O mighty man of valor, save Israel from Midian? 
What is the angel of the Lord doing? I think he's making a point. The point of this entire episode, really, which is summed up so well by an apostle of Jesus centuries later. He wrote this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power made perfect in weakness. Gideon is a picture of Israel. He's weak, but he's not weak enough yet. And he's going to have to learn just how much he needs the Lord. Because right now he replies to the Lord, verse 15, he said to him, Please, Lord, sir, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. And that's, that's actually a good start, Gideon. I'm, I'm, I'm weak. My family's weak. My clan is weak. My nation is weak. And then verse 16, and Yahweh said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And that's the heart of the story, friends. I will be with you. I remember the very first time I preached in a prison. It was in Southern California. It was a maximum security prison. I'd never been in a prison in my whole life. I was about 20 years old. I was a little intimidated. If someone had told me, just go and preach at that prison, I would have gone and preached at that prison. I would have obeyed. But I was so glad when my friend Scott said that he would go with me because Scott had been to the prison before. He knew where to park, who you had to talk to, all the gate things you had to go through, what you had to do when you were there. All I had to do was follow him. And maybe he saw a look in my face as we were preparing to go, but he turned to me and he said to me, don't worry, Paul, I will be with you. I was really happy for those words. It feels different when someone who knows, someone with strength is with you. But you got to remember for Gideon, that all of this is happening in real time. Like a couple of minutes ago, he was hiding in his wine press. He spots a guy who he thought might be an angel sitting under the umbrella of his dad's tree. And now that being is telling him to go fight against an enemy that shows up like locusts in number. There are so many of them, they cannot be counted. But he, weak little Gideon, is supposed to go out there and fight them all as if they were only one bad man. <laughs> You'll strike the Midianites as if it was one man. Gideon has some questions. Verse 17, he said to him, if now I've found favor or grace in your eyes, then show me a sign that it's you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Now again, context is king. It has been 47 years since J.L. pounded a tent peg through Sisera's noggin. It has been seven years of total domination by Midianite raiders. The only thing you've heard from Yahweh recently is this prophet who brings a message of judgment, and now you just happen to look over the wall, spot an angel, and while you're secretly beating out wheat in your wine press, and that angel's telling you to just go fight this massive army, it seems like it might be fair to ask for a confirmation number. <laughs> Verse 19, so Gideon went into his house, prepared a young goat. So you take a goat, cut it up, cook it up. Unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket, and the broth he put in a pot, and he brought them to him, to the angel of the Lord, under the terebinth, and presented them. And here I just want to pause and, and ask, how long do you think it took Gideon to make dinner? 
I would assume an hour or two, at least. Sometimes you, you just read a verse like that, and, and you read it in seconds, but in real time, that was hours. What was Gideon thinking while he was hacking up the lamb, baking the cakes? What was the angel doing? I got so many questions. <laughs> but, but one thing I want you to notice here is the patience of God. Kids, do you eat dinner at home, at the table, with the television off, waiting for everybody to get to the table, and then before you eat, you pray, and then you start eating? Is that how you eat dinner at your home? If not, have your parents come and talk to me later. But that's something you could do. And if that's true in your home, and you're sitting there at the table, and you've got that one brother or that one sister who's always late, as they never seem to come to the table. And you're, you're starving and you're waiting at the table and you're hungry and you can smell the food. And like, come on, where's your little brother? Where's your little sister? This is called impatient. But God is patient. Patient. Here is God the Son willing to wait around under a terebinth tree while nervous Gideon is slicing and dicing cakes and bakes, and then he finally comes out to the tree with the meal, isn't it kind of God to wait for us? He's not a pushover, but he is patient. Once Gideon arrives, verse 20, the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes, put them on this rock, and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of Yahweh reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, not the rock, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. What's going on? Well, the angel of the Lord, the Lord has Gideon lay out his lunch like a food offering. There haven't been a lot of those in Israel lately. Then he brings fire out of a rock. This is what we call a miracle, otherwise known as a confirmation. <laughs> yes, Gideon, it is me who's speaking to you. And the whole thing of the instantly consumed sacrifice, the rock on fire, the, the sudden vanishing of the angel, it erases every suspicion from the mind of Gideon of who this is. And now he worries that he's going to be next. He's going to be consumed like that offering. He's been talking with God. Gideon perceived he was the angel of Yahweh. And he said, alas, O Lord Yahweh, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to Yahweh and called it, Yahweh is peace, shalom. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. Gideon is met with shalom, not sheol, and he lives. He has seen God face to face and lived. And from then on, Gideon marches forward as a man of unwavering courage. Kind of, but not really. Chapter 5, when the weak truly listen, it leads to God-glorifying obedience. Or you might subtitle this, The Obedient Weakling. Now maybe you missed this in the narrative, but somehow back in verse 23, the angel of Yahweh was talking to Gideon even though the angel of Yahweh was no longer physically present. He had disappeared already. So later, that same night, the same thing happens. 
The angel of Yahweh is talking to Gideon. Verse 25, that night Yahweh said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to Yahweh, your God, on the top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. Here is God giving Gideon a religious act to do. Gideon has heard the prophet but he was still beating out wheat in his wine press under the shadow of the Asherim pole. Idolatry can be so deceptive that it can make you think it is better to beat wheat in a wine press than repent and destroy my idols. We love idols we think we can manage more than the loving God we know we can't. If Gideon is going to act on behalf of Yahweh, he needs to turn away from his idols and turn toward the Lord. You can't ask God for help while you're leaving meat at your Baal altar. There are two main idols representing two fake gods worshipped by the Israelites, the Baal altar, the Asherah pole. Gideon's told to pull over the altar and then he's to chop up the wood of the other and use that as fuel for a burnt offering where you burn one of the oxen. This is not a new biblical command. This is what everybody was supposed to be doing all the time in the promised land. God had said through Moses, this is how you shall deal with them when you enter the promised land. This is Deuteronomy 7.5. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. But in this day... Everybody in Israel is busy bowing down instead of chopping down. So Yahweh tells Gideon, it needs, your ministry needs to start with you and your household obeying my word. Even though nobody else in Israel is doing it, you better do it. So Gideon, verse 27, took 10 men of his servants and did as Yahweh had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And I would say to you, what a picture of a faithful Christian. If God had told him to do it in the daylight, then Gideon would have been sinning if he did it at night. But all God told him to do was, it says, on that night, God told him to do it. So Gideon, on that night, got up and did it, scared out of his wits. I will say it again. Courage is not the absence of fear. It is the presence of obedience in spite of the fear. There is no hint whatsoever that God was displeased with Gideon's actions. He didn't look and say, like, really, Gideon? You did it at night, like when nobody was looking? Not at all. Gideon did what he was told to do in spite of him being terrified while he was doing it. He believed God would be with him, and he acted in faith. Christian, if you wait to obey God until you no longer feel scared, you may never obey God. Elizabeth Elliot said, there is no need for faith where there is no consciousness of an element of of risk. Don't need faith if I'm not risking something. 
Faith is not the absence of fear. It's the willingness to do what is right without fearing any fear, without being controlled by that fear, without obeying that fear. That's why Peter looks at wives, and he looks at the wife in the marriage who's in the weaker position as the one who's called to submit to her own husband and reminds her to be like Sarah of old. This is 1 Peter 3, 6, do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Do not fear any fear. What's Peter saying? Well, he's saying what is true, I would say what is true in that unique relationship of a wife to her husband is true for all of us in our common relationship to the Lord. We submit to God. We submit to God's ways. We submit to God's wisdom. And sometimes that means you follow God to the dead end beside a Red Sea. Sometimes that means you get up in the middle of the night and pull down your town's idols. Gideon was weak, but Gideon obeyed. He obeyed even though he was afraid, and his fears were realized in some measure. Verse 28 down to verse 32 there, the, the townspeople gather, who did this thing? Pull him out that we may put him to death. Verse 31, but Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerub Baal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. What's going on there? Well, apparently his dad is believing now too. <laughs> Peter said, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. 1 Peter 4, 17, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Judgment begins with the household of God. Before Gideon's house can stand in the gap for God, God must cleanse them from their idolatry, which means the destruction of idols needs to start in our own living rooms, in our own hearts. There is much more that could be said about all of this, and we'll see more in the coming weeks, the Lord willing. But this text lands us somewhere, doesn't it? What's the big message of God to Gideon? I will be with you. I will be with you. God acting in grace. When nobody's obeying, everybody's bowing down to idols, God's showing up and saying, I'm going to be with you. Now go. Tear down that idol. Declare allegiance to me. I will be with you. These are the exact same words that God spoke to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to Joshua. They were the same words that comforted Henry Martin as he lay dying in the wilderness of India. And brother, sister, they are the same words that he speaks to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. My prayer is that you will step back and consider all that this text teaches and then compare it to your own life. Is there misery in my life, you might ask? Well, if there is, perhaps this is because of idolatry. What's crept in in your loyalties and affections above God? Am I listening to the prophetic word of God with repentance? Or am I just getting annoyed at it? Am I reminding myself of what God has done for sinners like me? 
Am I looking to Jesus and say, whatever you say, Lord, whatever you will, I'll do it. And then walking forward with shaking knees and shaky hands and doing it. Remembering that he will be with you. The old hymn said, dare to be a Daniel. I think somebody should write a new hymn called, yearn to be a Yerubbabel. <laughs> You're a male. Or maybe not. But I do pray that God would give all of us grace to live like our brother Gideon this week. To live like God is real. May he make it so. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please enable all of us to do what you call us to do and to rid our lives of every last hint of idolatry. Please do not allow anything to come between you and us. Give us a clean and pure and real and authentic relationship with you. Help us to live lives of sincerity and purity to bring honor to your great name. This we ask in the name of Christ. Amen.